Good morning. Hi, everyone. I hope you are ready to meet the Lord today. Are you guys ready to meet the Lord? Are you, are you, are you, uh, I, I don't know how you are doing this morning, but I love seeing all of you guys here. So whether you are coming here today and you're all pumped, or whether you came in here and you just want to faithfully show up for God, I love it that you are here on this morning. Amen? Amen. Today, I want to share with you guys um, a word about God with us. How many of you guys know what God with us is in, in the form of a name? Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us. That's the name of that God assigned to Jesus uh, when the angel spoke over Mary. You, he shall be called Emmanuel, right? In fact, um, let me pray, then we'll open, right? Father, we thank you um, for your goodness over us. Father, we thank you that you always want to be with us. And today, we want to know by faith that you are here in our midst. That we are not alone. We are not just a gathering of people. We are a gathering of people gathered around their Father in heaven. And you are here. And when you are here and in our midst, all of the powers of heaven intersect with all of the realities of earth. And so, Father, we rest on this morning in the assurance and in the high honor of being in your midst. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, sometimes when you hear this expression, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, uh, which book of the Bible do you think of? When you think of kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, what do you say? Matthew? Yeah, most of us will think of Matthew. Anybody thinks of anything else? Nobody thinks of anything else, right? We all naturally think of Matthew. The book of Matthew, kingdom of heaven. Interestingly, Matthew renders it heaven. You know, uh, Luke and Mark render it as kingdom of God. Right, kingdom of God. John doesn't render the expression kingdom, but it doesn't mean he's not talking about the kingdom. Paul talks about kingdom, kingdom of God. Okay. Um, in fact, sometimes if you're in church long enough, you may end up with this impression that this kingdom, kingdom thing uh, is a gospel thing. Four gospels. In fact, just three gospels, right? Uh, it might be a New Testament thing. Yeah. Old Testament don't have one. Actually, Old Testament God. In fact, the whole of God's story is a story of kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven it's a story of god saying i want to be with you and through my being with you you will establish my kingdom on earth if you remember one thing from today's sermon it is just this one idea god wants to be with us and through his being with us he establishes his rule on earth. How do we know this? Well, from as early as in Isaiah, this was said, okay, but it was referenced in Luke chapter 1 when, uh, when, when the angel spoke over Mary. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's the name of Jesus. One of his names is God with us, right? And so God desires to come and fellowship. And back in Isaiah chapter 9, it says the government shall be upon his shoulders of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So the Lord wants to rule. He wants to meet. Everybody say he wants to meet with us. Say he wants to meet with us, meet with us, rule through us. Meet with us, 
Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna riff off what Jack said. Okay, this side says meet with us. Everybody ready? And you this side says this side says roll through us. Okay, I'm gonna point my finger. Ready? Amen. He wants to meet with us. He wants to roll through us. And today's whole sermon is about that. Today I'm gonna show you the journey, the history of God, excuse me, I cough while I say of God. It's a, a journey of God meeting with us, ruling through us, and I'm going to show it to you historically in the form, oh, wait a minute, why do I have an old telephone here? How many of you guys use this? You, you've used it before, Ra raise your hand all the way, I, I did, I did, okay, in the 1980s, Jabatan Telecom gave us one of these, okay, so I actually had one of these, and then this changed to the the, the blocky orange colored uh, 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 one with the black buttons, right? Okay. But this used to be how people meet with us, okay? Okay. And communicate. This used to be how people reach out to each other. This was the technology. This was the infrastructure, okay? Um, on how people reach people. Today is all about God reaching people, okay? This used to be how it worked, okay? I show you another piece of old technology. You guys ready for this? Oh my gosh, what is, what is this? What, is, what are all these pixelated things? How many of you guys sent Telegram? Not the modern day Telegram. Tele, Old-fashioned old Telegram and the blue-colored aerogram. How many of you guys used to send the blue-colored aerogram? By the way, I know stamps are outmoded for, mo, for us today, okay? You didn't even buy a stamp. You buy this piece of paper, your postage is covered already. You write as much as you can fit inside this blue thing, okay? You write the address, just drop it in the red post box in the post office, they will take care of it for you. You don't even have to pay postage. This is aerogram, right? We don't, we don't send aerograms no more. We don't send telegrams no more, except that we have a telegram app, and it's like, like WhatsApp, right? This used to be how people reach each other. Okay, and you realize it's very different technology from a rotary phone. Okay, it's a very different mode of communicating. And every time you change your mode of communication, the way you communicate is different. The flavor of what you can communicate is different. Your memories about that mode of communication are also different. And you're nostalgic about it in different ways, right? You guys ready for one more? I think this is going to get a reaction from some of you. Ready? How many of y'all remember Buritex? Oh my gosh, straighten your hand. Raise your hand if you remember Buritex. My childhood was all about pressing 250 and reading sports news on Buritex, okay? That was my childhood. I don't know if you guys were like checking, checking the uh, um, uh, stock market, you know, and that was, that was your flavor. For those of you who don't know, for, if this looks like weird for you and this is new, this is old actually, this is like the original... Uh, news okay original internet on your tv so you control it with your remote control you press the buritex button and then you press one of these numbers it takes you into a next screen with the latest news on something it really is like a proto internet on your tv right i love this i love this right and of course there's always a kfc ad at the bottom i'm gonna how many of you guys 
How many of you guys used to use a pager? You used to carry a pager around, you know, people will buzz you. Now, the thing with, the thing with every successive uh, uh, um, piece of infrastructure, piece of technology, we sometimes think that, okay, every time there's a new one, we are getting better, it's getting better, it's getting better. And, and Thalia was just reminding me of something C.S. Lewis said, which is to be careful of some kind of chronological snobbery, where you kind of think that, oh, just because I came later, the older one was lousier, you know? Yes, there, there, it, does, it, it does become better in some ways, but there is always a trade-off. There is always a trade-off. Every time you pass from one you know, technology to the next, you trade off something. So, sure, you, you, you have very limited amount of uh, 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 messages. Pretty much, you can just say, you know, call, call Fergus, right? Or call, uh, call me now, or, or like, you know, um, I'm in labor now, right? Something like that. And then you have to go and find a payphone and actually call them back. Um, and, but the trade-off is, you know, today, sure, you have your unlimited character uh, WhatsApp and Telegram messages on your, on your phones. But back then, your boss couldn't reach, reach you and send you like, you know, long messages with detailed instructions and reach you on the weekends and reach you whenever and send you all their TLDR messages, which I do to the team sometimes, I'm sorry, you know. Um, and so there is always a trade-off. It's not a case of chronological kind of like perpetual just total improvement, but we should always think about every time you take a next step from one technology to the next, from one infrastructure to the next, you know, there is always a trade-off. What is that trade-off? And what are we losing even as we are excited about what we are gaining? I've got one last one to show you. How many of you guys, you remember this? How many of you guys, come on, there is one there is, there is one sound associated with ICQ at the count of three. I want you all to make that sound. Ready? One, two, three. Yeah. Not, not loud enough, right? Right? What's the sound of ICQ? Uh-oh. Right? Uh-oh. Right? And then you will go on here. Available. Connect. ASL. And I don't want to... I'll stop there, right? I'll stop there. But ICQ was the first... The first really big... I know there were a few uh, um, IRC and all that stuff. But this was the first uh, internet... Uh, chat, internet chat rooms and you're going to rooms full of strangers from all over the world and you just make conversations and ask people age, sex, language, you know, location, location, right? And, um, and that's how you make friends on, on the internet. Now, today, I want to tell you the story of God going through the journey with His people, wanting to meet with them, wanting to rule through them, but he always needs to find a, a, some way, some mode. God always has a mode to reach the people to meet them and to reach the people to rule through them. And over the centuries and the millennia, God has changed his infrastructure, so to speak, the method, the mode, the means by which he reaches people to meet and rule. He has always tried to do that through us, his people. But the modes keep changing. And I'm going to show that to you in the form of train lines, okay? So I'm going to show you. I, I did this. I was geeking out on this over the whole week. Um, how many of you are you taking trains? You know, but you know your train lines, okay? Okay, so I'm going to stand here, okay? You have the Adam and Eve line, okay? Which is what I call the altar line. I'm going to get to it in a moment, okay? You have the altar line in this olive green, and that covers the era of Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, until 
the time of Moses. When you get to the time of Moses, the mode, so before that, they go around, they are fairly nomadic. Don't worry, actually, you know what? We'll, we'll drop all these slides. How are we going to give this slide to you? Social media, social media. Our team just said, this will be on Instagram, okay? So, so you can go on Instagram and grab it. Now, here's the thing. Don't worry, guys, I'm not going to fall, okay? During this time, God reached the people through getting them to set up altars. So they will go about, they are somewhat nomadic, semi-nomadic. They will go about, then they'll put a pile of stones together and then they would dedicate that place to God and they would worship Him. This was the time of altars. And then when you get to the Moses time, something different happens. God gives them new instructions. I want you to set up a tent. This tent is called the tabernacle and my presence will come into that tent, right? And so you have the tabernacle line. It's a little bit like interchange. Pay attention to all the interchanges, right? Okay, the, the interchange uh, stations, that's where major leap in technology, right? Okay, so the interchange into a tabernacle and, and this goes on through Joshua, Judges, Samuel, David even, David even, right? Until Solomon. And then there's another change of line, right? You step off um, the tabernacle train line, you step onto the temple train line where Solomon now builds a temple that is rooted, anchored down. And now instead of the tabernacle moving about, now the temple is anchored, people move to the temple. The mode of interface completely changed all over again. And this goes through the time of the two kingdoms of Israel and Judah, through uh, um, to the single kingdom of Judah alone. You know, you've, you've got the Assyrian capture, you've got prophets like Isaiah, and you get to the next point. The next interchange is Judah has been unfaithful to God. They are captured by Babylon. And the next interchange, they step onto a new line with a new trajectory. They go into exile. And now there is no more temple. So the infrastructure has to change again. The technology by which God meets people has to change again, right? And then on this line, he meets them through exilic prophets, okay? Now I'm going to go into every single one of this in more detail throughout this sermon. This is, I'm just giving you an overview of the overview, okay? They go to Babylon. You have prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel. Then Medo-Persian Empire takes over from Babylon. And then you've got the Esther narrative, you know, until they say, go back. The Medo-Persian kingdom, Darius, and, and, and what they say, go back. Go back to your land. And so they step off the exilic train line onto the new, into the, another interchange which takes them back onto their original trajectory back home. And now, they rebuilt the temple so that now they step on this new line. It's the second temple line. It is essentially a continuation of the temple line. The same, returning back to the original dynamics or at least aspiring towards the original dynamics, hoping to improve on the original faithfulness, which was not very faithful. And so it goes on through the time of Ezra, through the time of Nehemiah. That's when second and first and second chronicles gets uh, 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 written. And it takes you all the way past Malachi until John the Baptist. And then one more interchange. The big interchange. This is the game-changing interchange. Because God breaks into in bodily form. 
So he interfaces with people now in the newest way, in the most unpreviously done before way. He comes in bodily form. Jesus lives as a human being, all of God and all of man. And then he grows up, he ministers, and in 30 plus short years, then he dies on the cross. He is resurrected. He meets with his disciples. He gives them some instructions. He ascends back to the, to, to the heavens, to the right hand of the Father. And then the next interchange happens again. They step off the era of the physical ministry of Jesus into the era of the Holy Spirit falling through the form of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit falls and now indwells in us. Indwells in us. And this takes us all the way through the era of the church, which is where we are at right now. We are here in the era of the church. We have the Holy Spirit inside us. And this is going to take us all the way until He comes back again. And New Jerusalem which we always think heaven is, we go up to heaven. If you read your book of Revelation, we don't go up to heaven. Heaven comes down to us. New Jerusalem descends from the heavens and we occupy New Jerusalem as a renewed creation. All of this broken creation is renewed and it descends to us and we fill it and inhabit it. And in that place, God will have perfect meeting with us. God will have perfect ruling through us. And we are all on this journey. This entire journey is a journey of God interfacing with earth. Now, I just want to say one thing before I go and break down every one of these, okay? It might seem obvious to us that isn't God everywhere? And if you, if you have a Hindu background or you know Hindus um, or, or any kind of other pantheist kind of worldview, they will say that, oh, but God is in everything. He is in the air. He is in the, he is in the, the chair. He is in the flowers. He is everywhere. God is omnipresent. But He's not omnipresent. At least that's not the Judeo-Christian worldview. He's not omnipresent in that way. He's not, in that, not omnipresent like that. So how is He omnipresent, right? He is omnipresent. He can be anywhere. He is, in some sense, everywhere. But there is a kind of presence where God desires to break into and interface with humans in a way that is not just like passively being there and watching. There is a way in which He breaks from space and time. You know, He's outside space. He's outside time. He's spaceless, means He's limitless spatially. He is timeless. So he's not bound by our, our chronology, okay? He breaks out of that and he crashes into our space-time in order to intersect with our world so that where we are, where he is, there is a touch point. That touch point used to be the random altars that were built. That touch point became the tabernacle that traveled around like a caravan. That touch point morphed to become the temple in Zion that touch point morphed to become the presence and the word of the prophetic voice in while they were in exile. That presence went back and became part of the temple that was in Zion. That presence inhabited Jesus of Nazareth, the human being. And then that presence, that touch point became your body. You are now the altar, the temple, the tabernacle. 
after all, did, did, did it not say that Jesus came, the Word became flesh, and what? Tabernacle among us, right? And now the Holy Spirit tabernacles in you, so that wherever you go, you carry the Spirit of God. Actually, uh, today's sermon called him ready. Done ready. Yeah, we did it in 15 minutes or like 12 minutes. Done ready. But you know what? I just want to give you a little bit of a slice of each one so you get a little bit more, okay? Now, let's, let's go into the first one, right? God interfacing with people through altars. We see this in Genesis 12, right? When, when Abram uh, sets up an altar, okay, and then God speaks to him. He says, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar to Yahweh um, whom, who had appeared to him. Now, here's the thing about the setting up of altars. As I shared with you all just now, it's somewhat semi-nomadic. They move about, they set up altars, and they go, right? Um, the altar is the place of God's intersection with us. It's the original uh, um, uh, version 1.0, right, of God meeting with us. And until today, we, whenever we pray, okay, uh, maybe if you, if you grew up in a time where we called them prayer meetings, it's not wrong to call them prayer meetings because we do meet. And in fact, it can be, it can be thought of as an, uh, uh, in the sense of it's a prayer meeting because it's a time when we pray and we meet not with each other, like a meeting with each other, but we meet with God. And another way to express that is we call it a prayer altar. Why? Because at the altar, God intersects. So, you heard Jack share just now, and I've shared it many times before. I will do it again. Our prayer altar here in, our, in Sunai Bulo Church is called the Dominate Altar. Why do we call it the Dominate Altar? Sounds like so rough and so, like, so masculine, you know? Okay, maybe men need to come and pray more. That's why it's called that. No, it's not. It's not because of that, right? It's called the Dominate Altar because we desire for God to show up in the place of the altar, in the place where we meet Him, that's a tent of meeting, okay? And when He shows up, three things take place. Number one, we allow Him to dominate our hearts so that we are no longer on the throne in our hearts. We are no longer the king in our own eyes. We say, Lord is king. Yahweh is king. God is king, right? And so He dominates our hearts. And when He dominates our hearts, He causes us to live in such a way. And when we pray together, we shift atmospheres. We shift spiritual dynamics around us. Have you ever had someone walk into a room and immediately the room stank up? Right? You know that. That person walked in and shifted the atmosphere in the room. Have you ever been in a workplace meeting and the moment one person walked in, everyone went quiet? That person shifted the atmosphere in the room. Influential people shift atmospheres. People who are influential can shift the atmosphere for the worse or for the better. When we gather to pray, we are gathering to pray in such a way that we shift the atmosphere of where we are praying and our own atmosphere so that whenever we walk into a room, the atmosphere shifts for God. That's why we call it the dominate altar. God dominates our hearts. He dominates the atmosphere. And through that relationship, of us yielding and the atmosphere being right, that God can have dominion over the earth. He can rule the earth through us. Don't you prefer for Malaysia to be ruled by God rather than to be ruled by men? Yes, then we must become a host for His rule. We must. We, he's going to rule through you. 
You don't have to be a member of parliament for him to rule through you. Better, you have the Lord of Lords, God of all the heavens and the earth, desiring to rule Malaysia through you. But yield yourself. Let him dominate your heart. Let him dominate the atmosphere. And through you, he can have dominion over the land. Come for Dominate Altar every Saturday morning, 9 o'clock. And we gather here, we pray, we pray here, and our hearts are changed. Every, time I, every, every Saturday morning when I leave, I feel that there's a renewed fire inside my heart. I'm more hopeful than on, than on Friday. I'm more joyful than on Friday. You know why? Because when I gather with each other, the Lord can do that work. Era of the altars. And then the altar got moved into the tent of meeting. But before that, I want to show you this. All along the way, God has desired to do the ruling, the meeting, the ruling, right? Through you, all the way back in Abraham's time. So this is not like great commission, like, oh, this Jesus going up to heaven, he gives up. Through you, Abraham. Abraham, you know how old this is? You know how ancient this instruction is? Supremely ancient. Approximately 7,000 years old, maybe five to 7,000 years old through you. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Not just Israel, not just God's people, um, ethnic Jews, not just them. All the people will be blessed through you. And this is the original. And this goes through, this cuts through all the way throughout history. Let's move on. God moved from moved His people from the era of the altar to the era of meeting in the, the tabernacle. So in this season, God's people moved around like a nomadic tribe. They would gather, they would pack up their caravans, something like that. They would pack up their tents and they would move. When God moves, they would follow. They became good at learning how to follow. Because literally, when the, when the, when the cloud lifts and moves, everybody's got to pack up their tents. And you can't be like, like linga linga about it because you're going to be lagging behind, right? So you got to pack up and you got to follow. And so they followed. In the time of the tabernacle, they became good at watching the Lord, watching the small movements. You know, if you're following another car, you tend to be very attentive to like the little thing like, oh, signal or not, signal or not, you know, because you are following them. You don't know the direction. You don't know where to go. You become extra attentive to how they move. That's the desire of God. When you are following Him, that you are watching Him, you are, you are attentive, you are present, you are not daydreaming, but you are on Him. That's the time of the tabernacle. This goes through the time of Moses, Joshua, Judges, right through till they entered the, the, the promised land, right? And when they entered the promised land, uh, um, eventually they asked for a king. Right, you go through the era of the judges, you know, eventually they ask for a king. God gives them a king, they get Saul, still tabernacle time. Eventually they get David, still tabernacle time. Now remember I told you that there is always a trade-off. There's always a trade-off. In the, the trade-off for, for, for following God in the tabernacle is that they are a lot more complex a society. They are bigger. They have to pack up. They've got to move together. Back then, Abraham, was, what, what's that to him, right? Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, what's that to them? They're all loners. In, in, in a, not, when I say loners, they have, they have, they have their family, like, you know, they have, they have their wife, kids, servants and all that. But they're pretty much self-contained. By now, they've grown big. And the bigger you get, the more complex it is, right? 
from here. Solomon, it was David who said, God, I live in a palace, but you have no place to call your home. I want to build you a temple. I want to build you a home the way I have a home. You see, technology is going to change again. I want to build you a home, a grounded, rooted home, the way I have a home. God says, not you. No, not now, not you. Because you, sh- you spilled too much blood, your hands, which spilled blood in war, will not build a house on me. But if this is really what you want, your son will have to do it. And so, the next interchange, Solomon honors his father's desire, builds a temple, the most lavish temple. But before that, I want to show you this, right? Okay, now we don't have to see this. We can move on. So, you see, the line from altars through the tabernacle, I'm going to move you all into the time of meeting in temples. Remember I told you just now that there is always a trade-off, right? The trade-off of building a temple is that now you are anchored on the land. You are no longer moving about. But you may say, Pastor, it's biblical, right? God always memang want to bring them there so that they find their home there, right? So it's biblical. It's not wrong for them to build a temple that is anchored to the ground. But there is a trade-off because now Zion, which is the name, the spiritual name for Jerusalem, the city, okay? Zion becomes the focal point. Now people no longer watch and wait for the cloud to move. Then they follow. Now it's home. And then all the people on the outskirts, if they want to experience God's presence, now they come to Zion. And you'll see that in some of the last, the last 20 Psalms, you'll see that quite a lot. Come to Zion. I'm making the trip to Zion. I'm going up to the mountain. I'm coming up to the mountain to worship the Lord. That, what is that? Temple language. The temple is anchored in Jerusalem, which is on a mountain. People now come. What is the trade-off? You're starting to see this. The trade-off is you become less less sensitive to the times when God moves and then you have to get up and follow. You really actually become less sensitive. You actually become, you start to collect more things and you start to have your own roots going deeper into your ground such that if God were to say, get up, move, you'd be like, huh? Wait, I need to sell all my property and make sure I sell it at a good price and make sure that I can make back everything before I can move. I can't just move. I can't just move. You know, don't, you're, you're moving too fast, God. You're moving too Don't ask me to suddenly go. You got to give me one year's head, heads up, you know, so that I can, you know, settle all my assets and then I can move. But back then, back then, God just moved. People just followed. They held a, very few things in their hands. Not, nothing more than what they could pack into a caravan and go. The thing about this, now, I, I did not read the book I'm going to refer to you. There is this book called Sapien. Uh, how many of you, are, you have read Sapiens? This, this is a thick book. Uh, Atelia's read it and she told me, so if, if ever there's any good research in my sermon, it's her, okay? She's like, she, she, yeah. Um, so, so, Sapiens is this book that charts the history of civilization. And it said this amazing thing that stuck to me, though I did not personally go read it myself, but I trust the, I trust the research. Check me out, okay? Check me out, Sapiens. I forget the, the author's name. He observed, the author observed that civilizations were hunter-gatherers, nomadic. They moved about, you know. Um, they had whatever tools they had. They had whatever, you know, uh, access they had. 
and then they spend their night sitting around the fire and then there will be a lot of storytelling, generational storytelling would take place, a lot of singing, a lot of culture, a lot of uh, um, that kind of thing. Families will grow up together, they will spend time, you know, doing all those kind of things, right? And then they will go to sleep. That's hunter-gatherer life. The game changer for human civilization was when they started to farm the land. Agriculture did for human civilization what the temple did for Israel. It caused them to be rooted to the land. Now I can't move. Because if I'm planting crop, I'm not going to move. I have to jaga my crop. Every morning, I got to water the crop. Every day, I got to like go through it, make sure there's, there's no, you know, I got to jaga, make sure no locusts, make sure no this, make sure got water, irrigation. You're tied now to the land. And the, the fascinating thing that the author of Sapiens uh, said is that after people became agricultural, agro-based cultures and early civilizations, fascinating thing, they started to gather bigger, bigger groups. Because when you need more people to farm bigger, bigger tracts of land, right? And so people, communities became more complex. They became more complex. Social strata became a little bit more, more strat, so society became more stratified. But together, together they could achieve things that as hunters and gatherers, they couldn't. They could leverage on each other's strengths and weaknesses or leverage on their strengths and through mass work, achieve things and through that new technology arrives they start to so in an interesting way their quality of life as a civilization improved but because the way farming works everybody works harder the quality of life of the individual became worse off so everyone collectively had better things they had better technology, they achieved more, they made more, they could sell for more. But every individual's quality of life was weakened, was worsened. They spent less time around the fire, they spent less time hearing generational stories, they spent less time uh, uh, singing the songs of the tribes, they spent less time uh, um, with their fathers and mothers because everyone needed now to toil the big patch of land. Now, think about that and think about this. Temple. Now, everyone's got this big, nice temple. It's glittering. It's beautiful. Uh, 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 Solomon put in all the best things into it, right? In the hope that it will glorify God and people will all come fill the temple. And when they fill the temple, they will worship God. And this would be the magnificent city on a hill that God has always wanted His people to have. And everybody will see Zion on that hill and be drawn to it and say, this is the place I want to be. This is where I want to be. And sometimes we can end up running church like that. Where Sohebolo Church is this like bright shining light and everybody wants to come in here so that they can touch God's atmosphere here. I'm just going to put a pause on that. I'm going to put a pause on that because I'll come back to that. But we have to be very careful to know when we are running church, what kind of church are we running and what kind of vision of church are we building? You can build a temple-type church and expect the whole world to come to you and have a great party every Sunday and then send the world back out in the hopes that at the next feast, so to speak, people will come back to Zion again. Or it could be different. We'll get to that. Now, the thing about the temple, at least the first temple era, is if you look at the history of Israel's relationship with the temple, you might, you'll be forgiven 
to say that it was a bit of a failed experiment. A little bit. Now, I say this, of course, on a human level. With God, there is no failed experiment. There are no experiments. But you need to know this, that during that time, the expectation was for people to fill the temple. But in reality, depending on who was the king in charge, if they worship Yahweh, then people would fill the temple. If they don't worship Yahweh and they worship some other kind of god on the land, some other kind of foreign god, some other kind of idol, and they set up their own separate smaller temples uh, to worship other idols, then people would be drawn to those. And eventually, it got to the point where the temple became so desecrated, they would bring in the idols of the land into God's temple, the temple that Solomon built for Yahweh. They would bring in the image of the foreign god and install it in the temple. To, so that the temple now became this, I want to say polluted. It became this intermingling of supposedly God's intersection with the world for His holy goodness and presence. And also, this foreign, this foreign deity, this foreign God, in all likelihood, you may say, demonic presence in the temple, making it no longer holy, no longer right. And like, what? How is God going to land there? And so it's very interesting. God's intention, first I'm going to show you this, right? As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of Yahweh filled the temple. The, this was meant to always happen. The idea is that the temple would be the place where God's fire kept falling down and people would go there, but... They desecrated the temple and because of that, God started working, meeting with the people and ruling through the people through a different host. The host he chose were the prophets. So if you know your Bible history and today you are getting an education in your Bible history, so I hope today you walk out here and you can say, I know the meta story of, 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 uh, of the Bible better, right? S1, S2, S3, S4, S5, S6, S7, right? Seven seasons of Bible history in 40 minutes, okay? But during that time, it's when all the prophets, most of the prophets come out, right? Everything from Isaiah, Jeremiah, your book of Lamentations, um, your Ezekiel, Ezekiel's later. Um, a lot of your prophets show up then. Why? Uh? I thought, God, didn't you already have a mode, an infrastructure uh, through which you would meet people and rule through people and speak to people? He did. It was the temple. It was meant to be the temple. But because they desecrated the temple, God would not use the temple. And so once in a while, you have a king who will cleanse the temple and clean the whole thing up, rededicate it back to God, and then God could inhabit the temple again and speak to people through that. But whenever the, the, the idolatrous kings came in and then they desecrated the temple again, he continued to use prophets instead. That's why historically, there's a huge chunk of prophets in your Bible. They are all coming out during the era of the temple time. Okay? Bit of Bible history now. What does that teach us about you? Because we know the end from the beginning. We know that we are supposed to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. But if our bodies are polluted, if our eyes look upon worthless things and desire them, if our hearts get mixed in with that foreign image, that idol, that demonic thing, 
right? And we put it into our hearts. And we say, this is the thing. This is the thing to worship. Whatever it is, that is not God. What happens to God, the presence of God? What happens to the voice of God? What happens to the meeting with God? What happens to the ruling of God through us? It gets up. It goes. And it goes and it now speaks to you externally as a prophetic voice warning you, calling you, begging you, exhorting you to leave, to purge yourself of all those things so that you can walk right by God again. And often, so often, when the voice comes, when the voice comes, reaches out to the Christian who is now filled with all kinds of things that are non-God, and they say that, wow, you're always chasing me, you're always disturbing me, you're pestering me, you're, uh, um, my cell leader is always kachowing me, you know, you're just scrutinizing, and, uh, and, and, and it's not comfortable. And yes, there are some times when we kachow you a bit, okay? You can be honest, eh? don't kachow me. But there are times when God genuinely sends out a warning cry, and He says, stop, please stop. He still does that today. All these prophets of caution and warning, He still does that today. To the ordinary Christian like you and I, whenever we are on some path, and often he, that prophetic voice doesn't even need a host. Sometimes it's the Holy Spirit speaking to us saying, can you stop? Can you put your phone down? Please, don't tap anymore. Don't swipe anymore. Just go. Get off it. Sometimes He says that, right? That prophetic voice speaks. Will we listen? Did they listen? No. By and large, no. And it was such a no. It was so strong a no that eventually God had to break that whole thing. Break that whole thing. And this in, this in itself is a lesson. Let me bring you to this part, right? Now, God speaks to Isaiah directly. This is just an example, right? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Yahweh. I saw Yahweh. And sometimes we just miss these things, these little clues that tell us about a lot about history. For one guy to say, I saw Yahweh, means that I thought Yahweh's presence was in the Holy of Holies inside the court. Now, you know, I have to pass through the outer court, Gentile court, uh, court of women, court of Gentiles, and then the, 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 the holy place, and then the most holy place, and behind the curtain, I saw Yahweh. This guy is like, he's not, he's not in the temple, but I saw Yahweh. Why? Because now God has decided to speak through prophets. Now, even through this time, the intention was not just to meet. The intention was to rule the earth and for God to touch all the peoples of the earth. He speaks to Isaiah, I will make you a light to the nations. Repeating again what he said to Abraham some 3,000 years prior, right? He says it to you all over again. I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Amen? So God is consistent. He has always wanted His kingdom to rule on earth as it is in heaven. That's not just a Matthew 7 thing. It's not just a Matthew 6. Five. I forget which, which part of the, of, the, of, the, of the Sermon on the Mount it is, right? Now, here's the thing. He takes them from the temple line into exile. I'm going to move a bit faster here. But the thing about exile is they no longer are anchored. They are now in Babylon. They are now in Babylon and now God continues to speak to them 
through the prophetic voice of their exilic uh, um, uh, prophets, Ezekiel and Daniel. And back in the motherland, Jeremiah continued to speak on behalf of God as well. And I want to show you, in Daniel 1, it says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream. Again, this is to help you to see when you see Daniel saw a dream, what it means is God's no longer working on the temple. He's no longer speaking through brick and mortar infrastructure. He's speaking to specific prophets directly. Now, remember I said, every time there's a change of infrastructure, there is a trade-off. So you lose the temple. You lose the big gathering. You lose that mountain, that city on the hill. What do you gain? You have to be sensitive to God again. Not just sensitive to God again. Uh, it's the di diametric opposite. Uh, because before that, they established Yahweh culture, Christian culture, where all my children go to Christian school and, and I work in a Christian office. I only hire Christian people and my neighbours, my whole row, full of Christians. And uh, I go to the Christian grocer and uh, everything is Christian. So everybody I see, everywhere everywhere I go is Christian. Right? I call it a Christian ghetto. A ghetto is not a slum. A ghetto is actually a neighbourhood Okay, where it's monoculture, only one culture is that. That's the original proper meaning of ghetto. We set up our Christian ghettos. The way they set up a Christian ghetto with a temple and the whole complex and everybody there are Yahweh followers. Now God breaks the thing. Lesson number one, there is no such thing as too big to fail in the eyes of God. They were big, they were big, man. They were so big, so grand. So in some, in some points of their history, so strong not too big to fail. God broke it because they were not faithful. God broke it. Send them into the wilderness again. The wilderness now is Babylon. And he says, now you are going to live amongst people who worship idols. Now I'm going to, you want to bring idols into your temple? I'll make you live in a land where ev under every tree there is some kind of God and under every mountain there is some kind of God. I'm going to make you live in those kind of places and you're going to learn what it means to worship God and to be faithful to God in a foreign land. Now, that's the trade-off. The trade-off is now I have to be extra strong in my faith, extra faithful to God. My allegiance to Yahweh has to be extra sensitive. Why? Because all around me, I no longer have the crutch of Christian culture around me. As Henrik preached a few weeks ago, um, uh, he, he shared that sometimes when you are in a midst with so much light, you can't tell when your own lamp is no longer burning because you tumpang everyone's light. Now in Babylon, there's no one else's light to tumpang. If your own lamb has no more oil, it's going to show, man. It's going to show. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. God continues to call out to His people and say, it's not just about you. It's about the whole world. It's about the salvation and the renewal of my creation. Everyone is broken. You're not. You're broken. They are broken. Don't just think that they are broken. You are broken. But don't just think that you are broken. They, are also, they need renewal too. And God's rule over earth through you is that He fixes you. He heals you. He repairs the broken parts. He forgives you of your sin. And then when you are connected to Him, you can go out into the world and seek the welfare of the city that He sends you into exile. He will buang negri you. The way He buang negri us into Sungai Bulo. He will buang negri you, right? I just, but actually this verse was, was, was the final verse God spoke to me uh, to, to plant this church. He will buang negri you into a place where you lose all your comfortable crutches. And he's going to say, seek the welfare. Renew this land. 
God's kingdom is not just about, oh, He forgives my sins, now I can go to heaven. Like, He forgives your sins. He renews your heart. He transforms you. He circumcises your heart. Why? So that you can seek the welfare of every single place you go. Amen? Then, eventually, they move back. Second temple, the dynamics are very similar. I will not spend too much time on this, except that they rediscover the book of the law. And Ezra reads out the law. So now the temple dynamic is no longer just sacrifice animals. And you know, the, now the temple dynamic is teaching of the law. There's a lot of teaching of the law. Because before that, there was no teaching of the law. They, the, literally, the law was lost. They found it like under the couch, you know. <laughs> they found it, right? And, and this is important because from this time until Jesus... Jewish culture, which is not recorded in our Bibles because Malachi ends, Matthew 1 starts, and there's a gap. During that gap, you have Alexander the Great, you have the Hellenistic empires coming up, okay? And what happens to Jewish culture is that it gets broken all over again. And when it gets broken, um, people start to gather in small synagogues that focus not so much on worship, it focuses more on teaching. And that's why you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all these over-intellectual, um, law-keeping teachers during Jesus' time. And we get now, oh, He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. You see how much God wants to restore the land, okay? He brings us all the way now to the era of Jesus of Nazareth. I say of Nazareth because it is a physical, historical Jesus who walked the land in those places. His ministry lasted a short three-ish years. So short. The shortest period of the, all of history, of all the different ways in which God interacted and interfaced with people. He met us through Jesus, the physical man. He went about. He healed. He cast out demons. He spoke. He, wherever He went, He shifted the atmosphere. But he did not mean for that to last. His game plan was never for Jesus, the physical man, to come and rule forever, you know. His, his game plan was to come to do something so, so amazing, to break the, to break the broken parts of all this once and for all. To go to the cross, die, pay for all our sins, and in so doing, be enthroned. Be enthroned on the cross. You know the cross is a throne? It's the upside-down throne. The thrones of this world have like glorious crowns and, and, and all kinds of jewels and all the riches and power. The throne of our Lord is a crown of thorns, a, a rope of mockery, a staff, which was not really a staff. It was just a, a, a reed. And he went onto that throne. He was enthroned. Yes, not the way we expected, not the way anyone expected. And so, Jesus goes to the cross. He dies. He is resurrected on the third day. He meets his disciples. He is ascended to heaven. And just as he is ascended to ascending to heaven, not this, okay? Just as he is ascending to heaven, he says, ignore the screen, he says, I give you now all authority. All authority. And so we remember that glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace. On earth, peace. Huh? That's still the call. It's never stopped being the call on whom His favour rests, which begins the era of the Holy Spirit. I told you in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, verse 8, He says, I will give the Holy Spirit to you. He will fill you. You will be filled by the power of the Holy Spirit. And now, 
because you are filled by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to go, you're going to go to the ends of the earth, Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And you're going to preach, you're going to heal, you're going to bring recovery of sight to the blind. All those things he said in his opening manifesto, the Spirit of the Lord uh, is upon me to what? To bring recovery of sight to the blind, to set captives free. All those things, now he did it, then he charges you now to do it. He meets you, he rules through you. This is what kingdom means. This is what kingdom means. And so, he now works through his people and he gives us this one final call, go. Make disciples to all nations. Surely what? I am with you. I am with you. God is still with us. His name is Emmanuel. From the very beginning, his desire was to be with us. And today, his desire is still to be with us. My friends, this is a very long history of God trying to say one thing. That one thing, actually two things, right? I want to meet you. I want to rule through you. I want to meet you. And I will find any kind of way to meet you if I can. And, I, and even if that means of meeting you keeps changing, I will still want to keep coming to meet you. Because when I meet you and you really meet me and your hearts are really circumcised and, and you really come before me to love me, to set me as your highest goal, your highest desire, and allow me to transform your heart, I can rule this world through you. And the day will come. As the church barrels on in history, what's that final day when New Jerusalem descends? I can tell you guys, I can't wait for that day. I can't wait for that day when all of the pain, the brokenness, not just of of sickness, but of human relationship, the brokenness of our relationship with the land, with our relationship to work. Don't you wish you could... I know, I know we love working, but we have a love-hate relationship. Don't you wish that our relationship with work could be restored so that work becomes joyful and fruitful and not laborious? Don't you wish that your relationship with other fellow people could be healed? Don't you wish that the earth could be renewed? That ecology would be renewed? that global climate would no longer go off the charts, that the climate of humans to humans, humans to animals, humans to creation would not be completely broken and dysfunctional. Church, it is too small a vision to just have your sins forgiven and go to heaven. It's too small a vision. That's never been God's vision. His vision from the start, my kingdom come and rule on earth through my people, and they will become part of my renewal process. And the renewal process culminates with New Jerusalem coming down. Church, let us rise. Let's close our eyes. Let us rise. I want us to, 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 just, to just worship uh, God for a moment. I'm not going to have to call you out, but I really want each and every one of you um, to just spend some time um, in the Lord inviting Him to come and meet with you so that the place that you stand becomes the tabernacle. The place that you stand becomes the intersection of heaven and earth. The place where you stand. The body that you are and occupy is holy. That's why when we say be holy, we are really saying honour the body you have because you are the host. You are a host for God. God fills you so that He can touch the land. Your body 
is a tabernacle. Your body is an altar. Your body is a temple. Your body is the place, the meeting place. And what will you say in response to that? We're going to sing this chorus again. We love you. We'll never stop. We can't live without you. Don't you want to meet him on this day? We love you. We'll never stop. We can't live without you. If any one of you, you're feeling far from the Lord, I want you to take this moment to rest. No pressure to sing. Just rest in his meeting with you. If any one of you, you need strength, just rest in his meeting with you. If any one of you, you feel that you can't control some situation in your life, something happening around you that you just cannot control, rest in his presence. Right here, he wants to rule through you. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that today we can come together as a church. And we know, Lord God, that we don't just want to do church in a way where we hope that many people will come to us so they can come in, get touched and go out. Lord Jesus, we, your church, SIBKL at Sungai Bulo, we dedicate our hearts to you. We dedicate our minds to you. We dedicate our bodies to you. So that no longer do we think of people come into the building to be touched, but the people leave the building to touch. That today and tomorrow and the days to come, we will keep going out, leaving the building to touch, to shine to heal, to repair, to restore. That that is your calling over us, Lord God. Teach us to be sensitive to your movement so that whenever you move, we can follow, we will follow. Teach us, Lord God, to carry and honour the Holy Spirit in us, Lord God. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that you have gathered us here to touch us, to meet with us. We pray that we'll complete the deal, Lord God. We'll be yielded to you so that you can truly rule through us as well. We love you. Now church, the Lord bless you. Oh church, the Lord keep you. The Lord turn His face to shine upon you. You know how radical that is for God to look at you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you grace. The Lord turn His countenance toward you. His kind look toward you and grant you peace. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.